0: If you don't know me or if you're visiting around here, my name's Jason, I am one of the pastors. Tim, our lead pastor, led us this, uh, this evening in worship. And so we're just gonna go ahead and, and get started this evening with the message. Um, you guys, I have a blister. <laughs> so if I limp around on stage, it's because I bought new shoes the other day without actually like walking around the store. Have you ever done that? Like you sit down and you try them on, and you're like, yep, they fit, and off you go. And then the first time you wear them, something goes wrong, right? And so inevitably, like, I'm picky. I don't, I'm not picky about my shoes. Like, I don't need certain shoes, but I'm picky about how they feel. Anybody else? Right, so, so I've got a, a blister on my heel right now, and it's bothering me. It's agitating me. Um, blisters, actually, they, they hurt, right? Um, kind of annoying. They, they kind of agitate. Um, but really, sometimes a blister or even like a splinter... Sometimes you feel like this thing is small and yet it can be like debilitating. Have you ever noticed that? Like when it's not supposed to hurt, when you're not supposed to be thinking about your heel, right, which is where my blister is, suddenly I'm forced to think about it, right? Like I'll be sitting in my office and somebody will call to me down the hall and I will jump up to go deal with that thing. That's what's on my mind until, bam, my heel hurts. I'm like, oh, that, right? And then I'm limping down the hall. Or if you've got a blister and or a, a, a splinter, you ever had one that you couldn't get out, right? And like, you don't really think about it until the moment you need your hand, which is all the time, right? And so the, the problem is these things, they like agitate us and they, they hurt and they, they're sort of debilitating, even though they're like dumb little things, and they get in the way of all the other things that we do. And we can't wait for relief, right? Have you ever had that feeling of getting a splinter out that's like a really satisfying moment, right? Or that day that you wake up and the blister's just not there and you didn't think about your heel all day long, that's a good day too, right? So there's another time though that, that I feel agitated and hurt, that, that I'm debilitated by some things that get in the way, that like remind me throughout the day when I'm not supposed to be thinking about these things, they, they sort of creep in. That happens to me when, when somebody does something to me that I don't deserve. You guys ever feel that way? Like, like, you don't know why, but somebody did something to you that you didn't deserve. They were mean to you, they ignored you, whatever it is. And it's like, it, it might feel small in the moment, but as time goes on, it's like, that really bugs me. That really, that really gets under my skin, you know? And, and, and the sense of justice sometimes wells up in us, and we're like, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to be treated the way that I was just treated. Um, I had a, a fight with my wife last night, <laughs> and I have permission, so like if, <laughs> just so you guys know, um, I cleared it so we don't have another fight. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, so last night, and if you guys, most of your fights that you have with your spouse are dumb, right? You look back on it, and you're like, well, that was stupid. Right? This is one of those moments. We were in the car, um, and, and like we were on a date. We had just gone out to dinner. I thought everything was going fine. And she goes, you know, I put gas in the car this morning. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> That's what adults do. What she meant was, you were supposed to put gas in it. You ran it out of gas. And, and you didn't fill up the tank, right? And what I heard in that moment was, you should feel guilty, Right? I don't think that's really what she meant. I think she just meant, like, hey, in the next time, like, would you please not do that to me? I was late. Right? But but what I heard was, you should feel guilty for this. And for some dumb reason, instead of just being like, sorry, I put my foot down. You ever had that dumb moment? You look back and you're like, that was probably the wrong answer. And so to, to respond to that, like I threw a fit. Okay? Men, we throw fits. Okay? We're just big children. Okay? So, um, so anyways, this fight, like, it kind of turned into something it shouldn't have been because I wouldn't budge. Because I was like, I don't deserve to be treated like that. I don't have any reason to feel guilty. Why are you picking on me? Right? And it escalated because, because of fights, right? Um, but it was all based on this idea that, like, I don't deserve this. We're on a date. I was just nice to you like 30 seconds ago. What's going on? you guys ever felt like somebody maybe accused you of something that you didn't do or that someone doesn't like you and you don't know why? Like you're like, I'm nice to this person all the time. Why don't they like me? Or maybe you went out of your way to serve somebody or to do something and like they didn't notice. Or you get the cold shoulder when you don't know why. Like there's a lot of times in our life when this thing, uh, we're just going about our day and then suddenly we're like, wait, 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 wait. I don't deserve to be treated the way that you're treating me? We can all identify with that feeling, right? Not feeling like we deserve this, this injustice. And just like a blister, it kind of bothers us until we deal with it. It can fester, it can get worse, right? And it can distract us from the other things that we're supposed to be getting done in life, especially if it's a big deal, a lot of these things we just talked about are, are kind of small, right? But there are some things in life that are a really big deal, and we're like, I don't deserve for my husband to treat me the way he's been treating me for 20 years. I don't deserve for my children that I raise to talk to me the way that they talk to me in public, right? There are some bigger deal things on the list, and it really can bother us. What I want to do is I want to use that idea that we all identify with, I, I don't deserve this treatment, I want to use that as a filter to continue in our study in Esther. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Esther chapter 7. And uh, if, you, if you've not been with us or if you just need caught up, um, Esther 7, we're, we're getting close to kind of the end of the story of Esther. And this is the payoff chapter. Like, this is the fun chapter where, like, the climax of the story happens. And so to set the stage for you, there are three characters in this chapter. One of them is Haman. Haman is the bad guy. A really bad guy. He's the problem in this story. Another character is Esther. Esther's the good guy. Innocent. And then you have the king. And the king is going to find himself in this situation where um, he's kind of stuck in the middle between Haman and, and Esther. And he's responsible to sort it all out. And so, Haman, being the bad guy, is kind of like the, the Hitler of Persia, right? Ancient Persia. He had this problem. The reason that he's the bad guy in the story is because throughout the story, his goal is to annihilate the Jews. He wants to destroy the entire nation of Israel, and, and there's some like, historical reasons, because he may be a, he's an ancestor of like historical enemies. But what it really boils down to in the story is that there's this one guy, Mordecai, a Jew, who won't bow down to Haman, and Haman is like really important. And so he, it really bothers him to the point that he's like, "I want to kill Mordecai." Wait, He's a Jew. I'm going to kill them all." And so he sets this plot in motion where he actually, like, tricks the king or the king's not really paying attention and suddenly there's this law in place that on this certain date the whole kingdom is allowed to just kill all the Jews. Just kill your neighbors. That's the bad guy, right? And Esther, she didn't tell anybody, but she was, she's a Jew. And so suddenly, while she's the queen, she's living the good life, she's finding herself caught up in this problem. And she finally gets to the point that she can't, she can't not do something. And so she sets up these conversations with the king. And it's not okay what Haman is doing. That's sort of the point. And, and the Jews didn't deserve this. What did they do? They didn't deserve to be treated the way that Haman was treating them. And you guys, you know that feeling, right? But have you ever also had that feeling where you know you need to have an important conversation or you need to ask for something, and you're terrified to ask? Have you ever been in that boat? Like, I remember being a little kid, and, and I had already gone to bed, and in my house, bedtime was, like, important. you like, you don't come back out, right? I don't know how you guys run your house, but, like, my parents were like, no, that door's shut, you stay. And then my dad came home from work. And I was still awake, and I was like, I want to see my dad, right? And the doors, like, cracked, and I can kind of, like, see him through the crack, and I want to go out there and talk to him, but I was paralyzed. Like, I was literally standing there trying to say, can I come out? But, like, my voice wouldn't work. Have you ever had those moments? When you you want to ask, there's something important on your heart, but you just can't bring yourself to do it. In chapter 6, Esther started this conversation with the king what are we going to do about this? I'm a Jew and there's this law and I don't think we did anything wrong. But she couldn't bring herself to actually ask it. And then we pick up the story in chapter seven, verse one, where now it's day two. She set up another chance to ask that question. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, private party, basically Haman's the third wheel on their date. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted to you. And she's finally able to get this out. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I've found favor with you, your majesty, like, if you love me, if you really love me, and it pleases you, grant me my life, This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. So she finally gets it out there. She's like, did you know somebody wants to kill me? Would you protect me? And not just me, but my people. And I love how this ends here in in the end of verse 4. It's not that she's saying, like, oh, I mean, if we were slaves, that'd be all right. (laughs) That's not the point. The point here is, to her husband, the king, I know how important time with you is. And I wouldn't be bothering you if this wasn't a big deal. So she uses this hyperbole, like, even if we were going to be slaves, I'm not sure I'd have bothered you but this. If you love me, you'll help me deal with this. See, it's this this conversation where she goes, we don't deserve to be treated like this. We didn't do anything wrong. See, Esther and the Jews were innocent in this story. They didn't deserve what was happening to them. Just like when we go, I don't deserve to be treated like this. Why are you so mean to me? Why are you ignoring me? Why... I don't deserve this, right? And so sometimes we just need to be vindicated. We need to be seen. For me, last night in our car, I needed to be appreciated and respected, and I felt like I wasn't. But often we've been wronged, or we've been mistreated, or we've been offended by something, and something inside of us is just upset, and it doesn't sit with us. It's not right. Just like this. It's not right what Haman had done to the Jews or what he was about to do. And so we stand up for ourselves or we get support, right? She's going in and trying to get support, validation. I'm not going to stand for this anymore. You ever been there where it's like enough's enough. I'm not going to stand for this. I'm tired of the way you're treating me. Verse 5. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who dared to do such a thing? He's mad, right? And Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, Haman, this vile Haman. Now, I'm imagining up until literally this second, Haman thought this was like an amazing day right he was getting treated so well the king's best friend in fact if you remember the story like everything is about to go really well with how he wants to get rid of mordecai and so everything's just perfect and then he's sitting down after dinner they're drinking some wine bombshell now imagine you're xerxes in this moment you're the king and someone is hurting your person you're a person the one that you love, right? Have you ever been that defensive parent that like too much defensive? I remember this one time in Missouri that my three-year-old was being attacked by like a four-year-old out in the street and you know that's what kids have you know they got in a fight and I went out there like that kid was the worst person ever and and in that moment I became the worst person ever <laughs> like I'm yelling at another person's five-year-old to protect my three-year-old it was really horrible. Have you ever been like that, though, where it's like, you can pick on a lot of people, but you can't pick on my person. Imagine Xerxes in this moment. He's so mad. Imagine Esther. She was so scared to ask, and she finally asked, and she's like, oh, yes, he's got my back. I love that feeling. When other people see what you see, but imagine you're Haman in this moment, right? He's like, wait, 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 I, I didn't know that the queen was a Jew. Oh, Wait a minute, everybody pause. (laughs) Terror rises up in us when we know we're in trouble, doesn't it? Still to this day, like I'm a grown man, still to this day, if I get a text or a call from my wife that says we need to talk, (laughs) my heart's like, what did you do wrong? Right? Do you have those moments? I remember it as a kid too. Like this idea that I might be in trouble just makes your heart race, right? That's Haman in this moment. And let's keep reading. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Duh. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg the queen, Esther, for his life. So Xerxes gets up, and he goes out on the balcony. He's so mad that he can't even talk. You ever been like that? You're just fuming, and you're like your kid did something wrong, and you're like, I have got to walk away, or this child is going to be in trouble, right? Like like physical trouble. I'm the only one? Okay, sorry. Liars. Okay. <laughs> Xerxes has to walk away in that moment. He's so mad, and why? why? Why isn't he just like, oh, I know what to do here. Haman, you're in trouble. Haman was his right-hand man. He was the vice president of the kingdom he was his probably his best friend you know leadership is sometimes lonely and he's got somebody that he's sharing leadership with Xerxes had basically just given Haman his signet ring his signature and said do what you want and so he's over here like stamping laws like okay this is how I get rich this is how I get rid of the Jews and suddenly it's all catching up to Xerxes He had abdicated his power to this guy. He had trusted him. And suddenly, it catches up. And Xerxes is like, what do I do? He's my friend, but he's going to hurt my wife. I let him lead, but he's an idiot. But my name's on the line because that was my stamp. So he goes outside to sort all this out. And Haman knows that Xerxes is easily controlled and manipulated. If you've been paying attention in this story, what's interesting about the king is he has all kinds of power, and he's a tyrant, but the people that are around him can convince him to do basically anything. Fire the old queen, you know, set up dumb rules. And so he goes to the only place, the only person in the room that might be able to fix this, the queen. If I can just convince the queen that I didn't mean it, that she's going to be the better person. I'll make her look good. Maybe I won't be in trouble. Maybe I won't die. And notice the reversal here. Esther, just a moment ago, was pleading for her life because of Haman. And now Haman pleads for his life with Esther. This is a book about reversals. Verse 8 just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Things go from bad to worse for Haman like that. I don't I honestly don't think he was attacking the queen. I imagine he's had too much to drink and he knows his life is on the line and so he's terrified and he's shaking and he's like chasing her around the room and she's like trying to get away and he finally catches her on the couch and he's like trying to plead for his life and he trips. Like falls on her at the exact same moment that the sliding door opens from the balcony. Xerxes walks in he's like, "Whoa! What are you doing?" And in that moment, Xerxes gets what he needs to execute Haman. No longer is there an issue on, well, it was my signet ring and I'm the one who gave him... It was, there was no confusion. Now it's like, oh, well, you're attacking my wife? And they throw a bag over his head and they lead him off. Finally, though, if you've been paying attention to this story, finally, the bad guy is going to get what he deserves Justice. This is the climax in every movie, right? There's ever, all these adventure and and um, like Marvel movies, basically every movie ever has you convinced at some point that the bad guy could win, which is scary. And then you finally get to that point, you're like, No, he's gonna get what he deserves. Yes, and it's that uh, resolution in the movie theater. This is that moment. The bad guy is finally going to get what he deserves. This is the payoff. This is when that coworker that's always a jerk to you finally gets caught cheating at work and fired. This is that moment when someone else proves your point after you've been arguing and left the scene. And you're like, oh, yeah, they said that too. I've been saying that for years. See, Esther and the Jews, they didn't deserve to feel like this, right? And so we're all on her side. Do you guys feel bad for Haman? No. I mean, you're, not, you're not supposed to feel bad for Haman. You're supposed to be glad that he's getting what he deserved. See, because it feels good to see the bad guy get what's coming to him. Because we've, we've all felt like Esther felt, right? We can all identify with being wrongfully mistreated. But there's a problem Haman felt that way too. If you're paying attention to the story, if you've been with us or if you've read the book, this idea that like, I don't deserve to be treated this way. I'm I'm innocent here. Why are you like this to me? That's how Haman felt too, just a few chapters back. Remember in chapter 5 when he's complaining to his family and his friends about Mordecai, and he sets the stage with how important he is. He's so important, so rich. The king loves him. The nobles bow down to him. Literally everywhere he goes, everybody's like, oh, here comes Haman. They all bow down. And then there's Mordecai. And he looks him straight in the eyes, and he grins, and he's like, I'm not bowing down to you. And he comes to his family and his friends, and he's like, I'm, I'm so rich, and I'm so powerful, and I am not Satisfied because I don't deserve to be treated like this. I don't deserve to be treated the way that Mordecai treats me. And so, while we've all felt like I don't deserve to be treated like this, what if we're not Esther in this story? What if we're Haman? Does that scare you like it scares me? Like apparently feeling like I don't deserve to be mistreated is not enough because they both felt that way. So let's do a quick character study on Haman. Let's look at at Haman through the story really quick because I think it's gonna be worth our time to sort this out. See, Haman was never satisfied. If you think about this story, about him being rich and powerful and having everybody in the kingdom bowing down to him. You realize, you you probably didn't catch it, there's this point early in the story where Haman offers, it's this moment where he's trying to get this law passed to to kill the Jews. He offers to pay the king 10,000 talents of silver. That would be like somebody coming up to the president of the United States now and saying, I'd like to pay off the Afghani war. Can I pay for the last war that we had? Can I fund the kingdom for a year? That's the kind of money we're talking about here. And the power of having everybody bow down to him all the time. And yet he's never satisfied. There's always more to be had. And I would say that the same thing is true with most of us. I know that because I'm an American. (laughs) And I'm talking to some right? And so there's this problem in our culture that it doesn't seem like we're ever actually satisfied, right? There's always more to be had. There's never enough. I always need a better car, Uh, a raise at work, a bigger house, better clothes, whatever it is. And, And maybe for you, it's not stuff, but it's experiences. There's always more experiences to be had or more influence or whatever. And here's the problem. With more and more, Investment, or time or experience. The danger is that as I get more and more of this stuff, I tend to feel like I deserve something to go with it. As I get more and more experience at work, I deserve for that brand new 18-year-old to treat me like I know things, right? Or whatever it is, fill in the blank for you the more we get in all these different areas, how quickly and easily we get to the point that we're like, yeah, I deserve to be treated differently because I've got whatever that more is. See, for me, I I went to Bible college, and I've been a pastor now for several years. And I feel like I deserve for my family and friends to defer to my understanding of Jesus and the Bible. If I'm ever in a room and everybody's talking about theology, I deserve for you to listen. I got something to tell you. I know the answer. You see how that works? How quickly we take what more in our life turns into I deserve, right? Another thing I know about Haman is that he was easily triggered. Mordecai triggered this thing in him. He had more and more influence and power, and he got to the point that he deserved everybody to bow down to him And so when Mordecai wouldn't, it changed something in Haman. He went from having a good day to a bad day, right? And for us, I think sometimes the triggers in our life aren't that hard to figure out. Someone at work can ruin our day, right? Or our month. Or seeing that person that hurt us three years ago in a hallway at church, and suddenly, everything changes. A trigger. Something in your heart changes. Or hearing somebody criticize your point of view, your politics, your theology, whatever it is that you're so invested in, and, and they criticize that and it's like, oh, ooh, something, boy, that bothers me. I don't deserve that. See, I get triggered by people who who sell out to one side of an argument or the other without looking at both sides. I feel like that is small minded, right? And that's really prideful of me because I'll be in an environment and I will argue with whoever is talking. Because I'm like, well, have you thought of the other side? I deserve for you to care about my opinion. That's me. So Mordecai is never satisfied. He's easily triggered. And then what happens is he justifies hate. That trigger with Mordecai. Mordecai mistreated him. He deserved to be bowed down. I deserve your respect, Mordecai. Since you mistreated me, it's okay that I mistreat you. And you'd say, well, I've never tried to wipe out an entire race, Jason. I'm probably clear, right? I've never tried to destroy somebody. Have you? Have you ever tried to destroy somebody's reputation as you're gossiping about them and you only talk about the bad things that you notice but not the good things? Have you ever undermined a coworker or a spouse with your family or fill in the blank? Have you ever done things that are destructive to people because they deserved it? And they were mean to me. That's our problem, right? Because I was wronged. It's okay that I lash out. It's okay that I gossip. It's okay that I make you look bad. See, if we're... If Here's what's scary. If we're not careful, this is where resentment and bitterness take root in our lives. And without knowing that we're on this path, because we feel justified, suddenly there's a wake of damage behind us. Something else that I notice about Haman is that he plotted to get or to maintain power. He wanted to use his influence with the king. He's like if I'm going to hate somebody, I'm going to hate them good. Right? So he, like he goes after everybody in Mordecai's family, the whole nation of Israel. And you'd be you'd say, "Well, I don't have that kind of power." Let me just run through like a couple of categories of our lives real quick. Um, parents. I've seen parents who plot to maintain control in their kids' lives by choosing the college that they go to for them. I'm only going to pay for ASU. Right? or we're a bulldog, you're going to Mesa, or whatever. I've seen parents put down the other parent to maintain leverage, emotional leverage, with their kids. Or even the threat of punishment. Right? You realize that as parents, it's real easy to do punishment wrong. Are we punishing our kids because we want the right behavior? We want them to, ref- to look good in public? Or are we doing it because we want them to become somebody and we're correcting the course of who they're becoming? There's a difference. Maybe in your marriage. Being the victim for leverage is a way of controlling power. Now, I want, I want to make sure that that lands. I'm not saying there are no victims here. But I am saying, okay, take that, put it in a box. That's not what I'm saying. Set that down. Being the victim, playing the victim card in order to have leverage is a problem. Or withholding something, like withholding decision-making in your marriage. Are you the only one who's allowed to answer that question. Are you the only one who's allowed to pay the bills? Or are you the only one who's allowed to make school decisions for your kids or withholding affection? Like, only when you really are just so nice, then I'll hug you in public, right? Or sex. I mean, fill in the blank, okay? Friends. With your friends, are you, are you the person who cancels You all have a friend that cancels, right? If you don't have a friend that cancels all the time, could be you, right? And we hate that, right? Because what happens? They they have the power. It's like I don't know if we're actually going to hang out tonight or not because Amy never actually confirms until right before. Are you all? Are you putting other people in your debt? And that doesn't mean I, I don't mean don't be generous. How many strings were attached to the things that you've done? Or do you use your friends as a networking opportunity? Even at work, are you the gossip? Are you the one who goes tattling to the boss all the time to make sure nobody else looks good? Are you really good at self-promoting, but really bad at promoting your peers? Do you hog all the opportunities even though you're not good at all of them just so that nobody else can get ahead? See, here's, here's the thing. We all want to identify with Esther in this story that I don't deserve to be treated the way that I'm treated. And yet, I think for a lot of us, we're a lot more like Haman than we are Esther based on our responses to this. See, we we didn't set up a genocide, but we're not innocent either, right? We have that feeling that wells up inside of us that says, I don't deserve to be treated this way. And I think a lot of times it's just because of our own pride. And Haman is is an extreme example. He's a hyperbole of this problem, right? But inside, we deal with the same sin. We all have a pride problem that shows up sometimes, right? And we feel like we're innocent. Just like Haman felt like he was innocent. We feel justified in what we do, just like Haman did. And what scares me is that a lot of times we just assume that we're in the right because of how we feel. When really it's because our pride got bruised and we've justified it to mistreat other people and we plot to maintain power. So let me ask you guys some questions. What triggers a sense of injustice in you? When you have that feeling that I don't deserve to be treated this way. And see, the truth is that sometimes you are innocent. But let's be honest, we feel like we're always innocent. And the reality is that a lot of times it's my pride or my ego that took a hit or I read into something that wasn't even true. And it's important to sort out because I don't want you to feel like Esther and actually be Haman. My fear is that we would live our lives deceived into thinking that we're always the victim and we're leaving a wake of damage behind us, just like Haman did. What triggers a sense of injustice in you? Another, just as important as that question is what do we do when we feel that way? Did you notice that Esther, who was innocent, she pleaded her case before the king. Haman, whose pride was hurt, used it to justify hurting other people. There's a difference in how we respond, right? So a second question, what do you use to justify hate? in your closest relationships, or with the people on Facebook, or that school board member, or your boss? What do you use to justify hate? Politics? Hear me, people, politics? Right? Isn't it it funny how we're just like, oh, I'm allowed to act that way because they're stupid. (laughs) Right? They don't think what I think. They're destroying the country. Or age, and I know that sounds like cliche. Um, As a youth pastor, I hear kids say that they don't want to hang out with old people because they're not cool. And then I hear old people say that they don't want to hang out with kids because they're X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank. Get off my lawn, right? Or do we use past wrongs in our life to justify hate? Well, you hurt me five years ago. So I will give you a cold shoulder the rest of our lives. Or how they treat me now. That one's a little harder, right? Somebody's currently being rude or mean or hurtful to you. And you're just like, "Oh, I guess that means I'm allowed to do this to you." Or they don't even agree with what I know. That's a that's probably more me. Like, "Oh, well, you're just wrong." What do you use to justify hate? And here's the third question. What are you currently plotting or doing to get or maintain power? Are you undermining others' opinions of someone? Are you gossiping only to point out the bad stuff in their life? And let's be careful, church people, that we don't call that prayer request right? Oh, I've got a prayer request, and then it's all just the bad things that you've noticed about somebody, and really what you want is for this person that's listening to you to have the same opinion about that bad guy in your life. Are you controlling information or opportunities to make sure that you're the only important person, even if it's just because these people don't have access to stuff? With your kids, with your coworkers, with your spouse, with your church circle... What are you currently plotting or doing to get or maintain power? Here's here's the problem. I think that we're all a little bit more like Haman than we'd like to admit. Because I've got answers to all three of those questions. I'll bet you do. But if we're like Haman, then it's probably important that we finish the story. (laughs) There's two more verses in this chapter. Let's read them. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole... Reaching to a height of 50 cubits, stands at Haman's house. See here, uh, if, if you don't remember from the last couple chapters, Haman was so mad at Mordecai that he put a 75-foot pole in his yard, and the plan was to have Mordecai impaled on it. That's rough, right? And so this, this eunuch that's standing there is like, hey, looks out the window. Haman's got a pole. Sitting out there, he had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, "Impale him on it." So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. You know what's hard for me to to ignore, hard for me to miss in this chapter, is the symbolism or the foreshadowing of this Persian pole and a Roman cross. It's hard to miss that there's this symbolism found buried in this story of Esther. This killing device where somebody gets put up in the air, publicly humiliated, killed. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, it it says that anyone hung on a tree is cursed by God. There's, this, there's something unique about public executions that happen up in the air, on a pole, or on a cross. And, and I don't think that it's accidental that this is this, the way that execution happens in this story. I think it points to the cross. I want to read you guys something that's going to be hard to swallow. The cross is where evil men get what they deserve. I'm going to read it again. The cross is where, or the pole, is where evil men get what they deserve. That's what makes sense in Haman's story, right? That's where Haman got what he deserved. And your first response to that is, wait, when I think of the cross, I think of Jesus. Jesus was innocent. That's the gospel. That was my cross. It's still true. The cross is where evil men get what they deserve. And I had one waiting for me. And Jesus said, I'll get up there. I'm Haman in this story more often than I'm Esther. And Haman got what he deserved. But instead, Jesus got what I deserve. In Galatians chapter 3, Verse 13, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. That's that Deuteronomy passage. Jesus took that for you. But the cross is where evil men get what they deserve. In Romans 5, It says this, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for Haman, for me. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still Haman, Christ died for us, while we were still sinners. I want to invite Pastor Tim to, to come back up. We're going to end the service a little bit differently than we normally do. And so, um, you guys, this sense of justice that we've been talking about, this thing inside of us that, that swells up that says, I don't deserve to be treated the way that I am being treated. You know, have you ever noticed that that sense of justice that swells up, that comes up in us, always looks outward? We're always using that to defend Never does that sense of justice swell up in us and go, I should not have treated them like that. They deserve better than me, right? And I think a lot of us hear this story or we hear this truth and we say, I don't do those things though. Like I'm not the gossip. I'm not mean to people. You know that Jesus raised the bar on what was sin. You know that the Old Testament talked about things like murder and adultery, and Jesus said if you do those things in your heart, as far as God's concerned, that's the same difference. And he also said if you hate your brother in your heart, it's as if you murdered him. I don't think there's anybody here in the room that hasn't dealt with this and at least gotten to the point that we hated people, we were mad at them, right? And stories like these where I might be the bad guy and not the good guy, that made what Jesus did on the cross that much sweeter. Right? Because it's these moments where we reckon, like, I'm not the good guy here. And maybe in your life, like in my fight last night with my wife, we go, at some point, you go, wait, I'm the bad guy. Wait a minute, I set this up where my pride got hurt. That's why I'm acting this way. It's not that I'm innocent. Look at the damage I've caused in all these relationships because. I felt innocent. It's in those moments where that hits hard that the cross is that much sweeter because it's in those moments where we realize what happened when Jesus said, I'll, I'll go to that cross for you, right? And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to have communion. And so I'd like to just invite the volunteers to go ahead and start passing. Um, the communion elements that are coming your way um, there's two cups, the bottom one is the, the cracker, the top one is the juice. Make sure that you get them both as they come by. What I'd like for you to do in these next few moments is, is I'd like for you to ponder these questions that we had on the screen. I want you to take a moment to sit with these questions and maybe try to, try to evaluate your own life. How and when are you more like Haman than Esther when you feel this way? What triggers a sense of injustice in you? What do you use to justify hate? And are you plotting to get or maintain power right now? I'd like you to spend some time with that while Tim leads us in a song here, and then in just a moment I'll come back up and we'll, we'll take this together. So I set this up the the way that I did on on purpose. I wanted us to go into communion wrestling with whether or not I'm the bad guy. Because sometimes it takes those moments of reflection to realize that the, the, the cross did so many different and amazing things for each one of us. And one of the things that happened is that he died for us, right? And that's what we celebrate with this. But another benefit of that is that we come to these moments guilty or feeling guilty, but we leave clean. Not that this moment is what cleans you, but the reminder that the blood of Jesus Christ was spilt for this, that his body was broken for this, that we wouldn't be forced to be condemned to guilt and so when we see these things in our life, they're a mirror, they're a reflection to remind us of how important the cross should be. And so, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had some bread. He was with his, his friends and they were celebrating Passover, a significant foreshadowing again of the cross. And he took that bread in that moment and he, and he said, this bread that we're breaking tonight... In a few days or in a few hours, my body is going to be broken for you. When you take this bread, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. And in the same way, he he took a, a cup, it was full of wine, red, like his blood. And he looked around the room and he said, I'm going to create a new covenant with you. You are going to have a new way of interacting with God and it's no longer going to be based on what you're good at or what you failed at. It's going to be based on the fact that I paid for it with my blood. And he said, whenever you drink this, would you remember that covenant? Let's drink and remember him. Jesus, we are so thankful that you went to the pole, to the cross where evil men like me get what they deserve. You didn't deserve that. I did. Thank you for paying that penalty that I couldn't possibly pay. We thank you in your holy name. Amen. All right, so what do you do with this? How do we leave with this? We come to the cross heavy, but we leave weightless, without guilt, with freedom from condemnation. So, one thing we're going to do today is we're going to leave having looked in this mirror and not leave feeling guilty. That's what Jesus did. But there's also this cool passage in Ephesians chapter 4 I want to read to you. As a prisoner, For the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. What Paul says is, you should live a life worthy of the cross. And a life worthy of the cross looks nothing like the life that I brought to it. It's humble. Others focused. I'm not promoting myself. It's gentle, not quick to anger, patient, and loving. That's our calling. Our calling is to bring these things to the cross, but then to respond to that weightless, guiltless feeling by living a life that's worthy of that trade. We pray one more time over you before we go. Heavenly Father, thank you for these moments where we see ourselves clearly through the lens of Scripture. Would you continue to work on us as we go about our week, showing us where we are like Haman in those moments sometimes, where we say, I don't deserve this, and and our feathers get ruffled. Would you help us to take a deep breath, realize it might be our pride, and live a life worthy of the cross? We pay these things in Jesus' name. Amen.